Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Uh, welcome to uh, Sparrow Alden's thesis presentation. This is sort of an encore performance of Sparrow Alden's thesis presentation, and uh, we are uh, we are very happy to have everybody here for this. Uh, really, I'm very excited for everybody to see um, what Sparrow has been doing. There have been some, uh, uh, just this, this, uh, project has been such a wonderful development. Um, you know, at the very beginning, um, Sparrow's goals were, were very modest. She'll sort of explain how the project grew as she went along. Um, and uh, I still thought it was going to be awesome and a lot of fun. And indeed, uh, what she did, even in the initial phase of her project was really, really cool. And then it just kind of exploded and became something actually kind of groundbreaking and, and exceptionally exciting. So I am uh, I'm, I'm I'm very eager for you guys to see what uh, Sparrow has been up to. I am uh, I am tremendously uh, pleased and and proud of what she's accomplished here uh, in her work. And I will pass things over to Sparrow to let her share it with you. Thank you so much, Professor Olson. Good evening, friends. I'm delighted to see so many of you able to join me for this encore performance. Thank you very much for joining me. It's the culminating step in what has been an amazing journey. Yeah. Uh, Professor Olson is going to keep an eye on your chat box questions. That's right. So please That's right. type stuff in. Yeah, in, 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 in your GoToWebinar go control panel there, you have a, a, a box labeled questions. And if you type those in and enter those, I'll get those, and then I'll pass those along to Sparrow when she pauses for questions. Oh, fantastic. Alrighty. Don't forget to, uh, to do the screen sharing thing now, though. It's still not on yet. Oh, oh. I'm so sorry. Is yeah. it the button that says go? That's the one. Ooh. There it is. Okay. All right. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Excellent. All righty. Um, in about 1990, Richard Blackwelder published the Tolkien Thesaurus. In his own words, it's a concordance of the important nouns, verbs, adjectives, and adverbs of the Lord of the Rings. I got a copy of the Tolkien Thesaurus as a wedding gift. For my master's project, I continued Blackwelder's work on a smaller scale by creating a concordance of the important words of the Hobbit to share freely with fellow scholars. With electronic texts widely available, you can look up the word grim yourselves. So I've added commentary to some concordance entries to note interesting etymologies, word usage, subtleties of connotation, my own questions, and similar tidbits. While not everyone described as grim in The Hobbit is a king, all kings are grim. My question throughout my Mythgard studies has been how does Tolkien create tone and register? Is it special words, or kinds of words, or syntax, or poetics, which create the high and faraway feelings supporting the content? How does he help us cross the borderlands from story to legend? To add to the concordance entries, as I collected the important words from The Hobbit into a really beautiful spreadsheet, it is color-coded and everything, I tried to notice and tag the words which I assumed contribute to Tahai Register, words which are especially beautiful and high-sounding and archaic, and I can hope you can tell that was a train wreck. It just did not work. 
First of all, how am I to judge which words are important? If I've got an idea that everything after chapter 16 is important, then I could label all the words after chapter 16 important, and lo and behold, I've just proved my own argument. It's very easy in traditional scholarship to fall into that kind of selection bias. We, we cherry-pick our texts and quotations and examples and hold up only the ones which support our hypotheses. If I want to explore scenes concerning Smound, a concordance gives me all the references to him without skipping over the difficult passages. When reading another scholar's work, I can double-check that they explored all the evidence in making their point. So, I have to avoid selection bias, but how do I know which are the important words? I had to find an objective measurement. And Project Gutenberg came to the rescue. The Wikipedia folks have created non-lemmatized word frequency lists for the entire Project Gutenberg corpus of public domain works. It's an imperfect instrument. But on a scale of a 96,000-word novel, I didn't really need a laser scalpel. I figured any author can use the most common words. Now, common words are important, obviously. They're concepts that we need to communicate all the time. But in considering what makes Tolkien's writing special, I figured the uncommon words are the ones important to our discussion. These are the words that Tolkien can use like no one else to create register outside of the everyday. I chose to eliminate from this concordance the 10,000 most common words in the Project Gutenberg corpus. In my reading on the topic of word frequency, I estimated that would leave about 300 different words from The Hobbit to work with, and that was a nice-sized project. My second problem lay in tagging the words. If I like words that show up in poetry and say that makes them high register, there's the selection bias again. I really tried. I really tried to make high and low tags work, but after a couple of months of trying to shoehorn words into those particular little boxes, I finally gave up. Words are not inherently high or low. The creak of a gaffer's knees in a rustic scene is completely different from the creak of leather as the hero hurls himself into the saddle. I had to get at how individual words contribute to register without subjective categories. I needed categories assigned by someone other than myself. The Lang and Lit Scholar's version of a double-blind study. Now, it was the Oxford English Dictionary to the rescue. That venerable work has a lot to choose from in special word categories and etymology. This was the chiefest of a handful of similar tools I used for finding the tags assigned by professional editors who had no horse in the Hobbit concordance race. Here was another challenge. If I were to use freely available software to publish a standard concordance, each entry would have a few words surrounding the main word. In this digital age, if your computer is clever enough, it could put back together the text of The Hobbit from all those overlapping words, as you can see in this example. 
here's what I understand about scholarly fair use. I'm allowed to chop up the words and phrases and write about them, but not in a way that you or your computer could put the text back together. My idea was to break the text of The Hobbit roughly into phrases with no overlap between them. You may know from looking at my work that in a hole and in the ground are both in the first paragraph of the first chapter, but you don't know in what order. I marked up my hand-typed copy of The Hobbit to break it into phrases. With the encouragement of the Tolkien professor, I used a blog as the format for my project. In sympathy with the philosophy of Sigma University, the resources I created are freely accessible to anyone who can reach their public library. The blog format allows you to search on the word tags to find all the word groups. I can keep the concordance up to date easily, and it's a living document of how I accomplished each step, including errors, there were a lot of errors, and now you can avoid those errors in your own research. To find the blog, search the internet on words that you were saying with all the spaces removed. With the spaces, you could be sent anywhere hobbity on the whole internet, but take out the spaces, you'll find my blog. If you have JavaScript enabled on your computer, your use of the site will go perfectly smoothly. Without JavaScript, you may have to do some extra clicking. From the front page, you can click to see my works cited, including credits for photography and artwork that you see tonight. I want you to be sure to check out these artist websites. You can even click Ever On to see what spin-off projects have already suggested themselves and captured my imagination. But first, begin exploring the blog by reading the About page, full of links to different features. On the About page, you can scroll down to find the tools which I've created to share. The first tool, many editions of The Hobbit abound. So using a page number for a quote or word reference was something I wanted to solve. In this Hobbit word study, I've made an index of the paragraphs of the work, given each paragraph a unique chapter paragraph number. When you see a quotation in the concordance or in a blog entry, you'll see the paragraph number, check the index, and easily find it in your own edition to get context. And I hope that when you write your papers, you'll be using this paragraph numbering system too. My explorations took me to the 1937 edition of Chapter 5, so I've included a paragraph index for that edition and chapter from the Children's Book Club. The 1951 edition of Chapter 5 was not a completely new chapter, nor was it identical to 1937 with just a couple of words added. Many paragraphs remained untouched. About a dozen paragraphs were recognizable but altered between the two editions, and some paragraphs were removed wholesale and replaced. The next tool listed on the About page is a table comparing the paragraphs of Chapter 5, as it appeared in 1937 and in 1951, including this darling little graphic with stars on it, of the different paths which the two editions take. The Digital Humanities Toolkit is yours to use freely. These are Python scripts written by my tech support, and they include a concordance maker that uses those phrase breaks I mentioned, and it ignores words in a stop words file. 
In my case, I put the 10,000 most common in the stop words file. There's also a word marker, which will give the same tag to words you've chosen to group together, and a word counter that will take you to a particular word number of a text file. There's a useful readme file, and tech support has placed these tools in the public domain. Once you have these, you're ready for the concordance itself. As I said, I thought I'd wind up with about 300 uncommon words to work with. <clears throat> it is your cue to laugh. This is Tolkien. His word hoard is deeper and wider than that of mere mortals. He used the uncommon words about three times more often than is typical, and many of these he only used once or twice for a total of 1,534 individual words. All of these have entries in the concordance. As of today, 500 entries have annotations like etymology or word use or even my amused musings. The rest of them have unembellished traditional concordance entries. On the rest of the About page, you can find help getting started using the whole blog. Click through to different paths depending on what you're looking for. If you read the blog chronologically, it is a paddle down the stream of my consciousness. Discover exciting mistakes as I make them. Things get pretty boring at the end of June. That was the week I gave myself permission to make plain concordance entries for the last thousand words. My own writing for the blog is in the register of a lab notebook. Compared to a journal article, it's pretty informal. I felt like you guys were just coming over for morning coffee and I would explain what I'd been going on in my project. But if you would like that journal kind of structure for reading about it, just click on the tags Introduction, Discussion, Method, Results, and Conclusions. Big hint, results is where all the good graphs are. Well, what if you'd like to explore the word tags? I followed my notion that old-fashioned words have something to do with high register. The OED editors have made the call and labeled certain words or particular uses of them as obsolete, archaic, rare, colloquial, regional, or dialectical, and I tagged all of these archaic. Of course, we know that poetry is integral to The Hobbit, and I believe poetry is related to register, and I cast around a little bit to find a category of poetic words that could be scored objectively, which the OED editors would help me with. The tag is onomatopoeia. It's been applied to every uncommon word that the OED calls onomatopoetic, imitative, echoic, or reduplicative, whether that word is in a formal poem or hidden in the prose. Over the course of the project, I've come to call these the sound play words. I added this tag also to Gollum's sibilant speech and his throat noise, as well as his name, and the raven names Karak and Roak. For a little bit of fun, and because I've heard discussions about how food imagery is used in the book, I tagged food and food implements like crockery. This tag was not objectively assigned by another editor, but I had clear objective criteria for my tags. While I was entering words from the spreadsheet to the blog, 
Sometimes I made many lessons for myself and commented and tagged words in categories, such as those beginning with the prefix a, like abreast, alas, a back, a fire. I made the 100k tag for the words so uncommon as to be outside the 100,000 most common words in Project Gutenberg. British is the tag for words from Scottish, Irish, and Cumbrian. JRRT words are created by Tolkien. Be bother, be wother, bitsy, and creepsy. And best of all possible words, enjoy the gem tag, indicating those words which surprised me with multiple meanings, subtlety, and elegant playfulness. I reserve this tag for those words which made my eyes mist over as I discovered their complexity and beauty. And those of you who know me in person know that I am being quite literal about weeping over beautiful words. So, we have 1,534 entries of uncommon words, plus a few common ones which snuck in, such as be or eat, because of Gollum's sibilant is, and we eats it, which is surely an uncommon use of the word. I sat down with my advisor in March and showed him everything I had prepared to make the concordance just as you can see it today. We took a look at my spreadsheet of words and phrases and something jumped out. Not only does a concordance entry tell you where to find the word, it can give you a mini map of the distribution of the word in the book. You can see here that eyebrows are mentioned only in the first half of The Hobbit. Surely Gandalf looked gruffly out from under them when he was camped with Bard in chapter 16. And someone's got singed in the dragon attack in chapter 14. But I think that eyebrows are funny, particularly bushy ones. And their comic value keeps them unmentioned in the second half of the book. They simply weren't the right tools for the job after that point. Something to do with unfunny register, whatever that is. Not only was I set up to create my concordance, but my fellow scholars and I could write papers about the distribution of individual words for the next 1,534 Mythgard semesters to come. I thought I was done with the design phase of this project, and all that remained was putting the concordance together. That is the setup to our unexpected party. Is there anything I can answer about the concordance itself or my method before we dive off the cliff. Yeah, uh, see, so yeah, one question that came in, Sparrow, uh, Amanda Drager was asking um, regarding the uh, Project Gutenberg word list. Uh, she says, you mentioned mm -hmm. it was non-lemmatized. Um, what yes. is the significance of lemmatized versus non-lemmatized? Oh, uh, bless your heart for asking. I'm glad you did. Um, it's something that I just learned about during this project, which I should have known for years, being a word fan. If I have a non-lemmatized list, then I'm going to list the word knit and knitted and knitting as three separate words, which is if you're looking something up in a dictionary or a concordance, you hope for it to be lemmatized, you'll just look up knit and find all the different forms of it. So um, in other words, if the really beautiful past participle of the word work 
does not get lemmatized, doesn't get clumped in under work, then we can have wrought that beautiful word as an uncommon word because it was not lumped in under work. So it enables you to identify not only words which are themselves intrinsically uncommon, but uncommon forms even of common words. Exactly. Right. Exactly. There, right. there are some words that maybe the past tense of uh, dream may be dreamed or it may be dreamt. And one of those may be more uncommon and that would get listed as uncommon since I used a non-lemmatized filter. Right, right. But a lemmatized form would just say all of that counts as common because it's all a form of dream, which is a common word. Exactly. Right. exactly. That right. was why I was really excited to find that filter. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> one request. Uh, could sure. you uh, uh, could you just flash up a glimpse of your actual spreadsheet? People are curious <gasps> to see what the spreadsheet it. itself okay? looks like. Yeah. Can you do that? Yeah, why oh, not? Oh, oh, okay. Why not? Ready? Um, <clears throat> yeah. Get, yeah, it's folks, you don't want to get um, seasick here. <laughs> you, you, you talk, Corey, while I go find it. Here we okay, go. I'll talk. So the the thing that I think is super cool about uh, this, and and you know, wh one of the things that I find really most impressive about the way that you know Sparrow, you've set this whole thing up. It is so easy, as you say, to to do. You know, a lot of projects that I have seen where people are doing you know, sort of applying certain kinds of, you know, data mining and data mapping techniques to literature, um, is that basically the, there tends to be, in, again, in projects that I've seen, there tends to be more focus on the process of the of the actual data mapping than there is on the data tagging at the beginning. Um, and it's really easy to just kind of go through, be sort of selective and as you were implying before kind of bias all of your results by what words you choose to tell it to look for at the beginning um i find the way that you the thoroughness with which you have gone through the text uh to label every word and and uh, <laughs> uh and find, you know do your double blind thing and find way you know objective ways to categorize these words which have nothing to do with your own editorial choice i mean you mentioned a few that do have editorial choice but those are not you know words that you're using for these other things um i think it's it's uh, this is this is the most impressive thing and of course mythgard students all know sparrow is the queen of spreadsheets so i know that I people are curious to see what the spreadsheet the hobbit spreadsheet looks like <laughs> isn't this fun this is the hobbit spreadsheet and i'm i will stop if i'm making anyone um seasick but i had things tag archaic i thought for a little while oh there are a lot of birds should i tag the birds that turned out to be not quite as useful um I, there were about 50 different things i tried to tag and then i really with tolkien professors help said okay focus down on maybe only 10 and then i had three big ones so um but i i tr is it a is it a boring word is it a hyphenated word yes oh i have the tolkien wrote so many hyphenated words that either should be compound words according to the dictionary or two separate words that i have this whole theory about how he used hyphenated words to remind us that he was translating that, oh gosh, I don't know a good word for that in English. Let me do this agglutinative thing um, to try to translate from the original manuscript that Bilbo wrote. Uh, 
so uh, so I tracked hyphenated words and that's one of our tags on in the concordance um, oh at the top here I've sorted on the words of British but not English origin like Carrick mm -hmm. Carrick is a word from Cumbrian who speaks Cumbrian? No one speaks Cumbrian. But Tolkien knew a word from Cumbrian. You can travel to the north end of the Lake District of Britain and climb Carrick Hill. And a Carrick is a rocky bit of top ground. And then you can walk five miles to the village of Carrick Castle. I was just so, this was, as you can see, it's a gem word because it made me cry. <laughs> because I was so excited that this is an old, old Cumbrian word. I was just, okay, so, um, sorry, um, can you tell I'm talking with my hands? I hope everyone <laughs> yes. can, can see my hands flapping and I have onomatopoeia with all sorts of good stuff. In it. I tried to tag things high and low. I even tried to tag things funny until I remembered that I don't have a very good sense of humor, so I shouldn't try to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is just great. I mean, I, I, cause it, to me, it fun. is this stuff. Um, you know, what, you're, what you go on to do next and what you're going to be talking about in the rest of your presentation is, you know, where some of the really mind-blowing stuff happens, and it's really great. Mm -hmm. But it all begins here. I, this is really the heart I of could, the thing. I could not have done any of the cool stuff. I could have done it, but it would have meant nothing. Yeah. Without this really careful I got to I got to get my hands on the words and look at them and see how many forms do they come in. It it felt really good. I have a I even asked a dear friend of mine who is from Scotland if the word Carrick was in her vernacular. And she said Oh no no that doesn't mean a high rocky bit of ground at all never heard of it and she emailed me 5 minutes later and said I did grow up in Carrickno <laughs> <laughs> so it's a place name in Edinburgh for goodness sake right oh my right. goodness okay um shall we shall we hop back Yes, yes. Let okay. us do that. I'll and again, please do. Um, um, I just wanted to make sure everybody knows. Um, I'm I'm watching the questions box for Sparrow, so don't worry that you're going to distract her or anything by typing comments or questions while she's speaking. Um, go ahead and enter those so that I, you know, we make sure that we have those ready when she uh, when she pauses next for questions. So just wanted to encourage people Absolutely. to feel free to go ahead and do that. I love getting questions because it's a chance to to put on those things that weren't perhaps exactly on the target of the presentation, and I can flap my hands a lot in a friendly <laughs> manner. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Okay. Very good. Were we on eyebrows? Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we just did eyebrows. Excellent. Here we go. Ready? I thought it was all over, but the commenting and the editing and the proofreading, but then Professor Michael Drought Anglo-Saxon scholar extraordinaire lectured at Mythgard on lexomics, the field of applying statistical analysis to text. And he rocked my world. The example that he showed us was of Old English manuscripts. He and his colleagues had digitized the manuscripts. They tagged the character Thorn, which you can see up on the left here, as having a pen stroke that did or did not have certain variables, like a little hook on the downstroke. 
the software tallied up those tags and made a graph like a map of the distribution of those different pen strokes throughout the text. The change from one type of thorn to another at a certain point was so complete and lasted so long that Professor Drought could infer a different scribe with a different hand had written that section. Drought and his colleagues could approach each scribe's work separately, asking how that individual wrote marginal notes or changed words into their own vernacular. Could this tool be used to track classes of words? Instead of just looking at eyebrows, could I look at the distribution map of a whole group of words that I tagged? So, all right, step back. Using digital humanities tools can raise concerns. It's still the human being asking the questions. We're still vulnerable to selection bias. As they were scoring the letters, Dr. Drought's team had to not know where each thorn was from in the text so they could score it in an unbiased manner. The good news was I had been careful to set up using objective criteria, as Professor Olson said. After all kinds of effort and expense, digital humanities folks might wind up reaching conclusions that everyone else has already reached. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, as long as we treat that as a preliminary step. We can look at data and believe they're significant, if we are not rigorous about interpreting that data. Statistics can be scary to some people. Well, for cow's sake, drop me an email. I'll talk you through it. We can become distracted by details so tiny that we kind of take apart the tower stone by stone and forget that from the top we could have seen the sea. And we might discover an intriguing pattern in the text and imagine that we are done. Finding a pattern or a break in the expected pattern only answers the question, what? As the Tolkien professor says, the first question is, what do we see? But that's not the only question. We are scholars. Once we've asked what, we must ask, so what? On the exciting side, a well-programmed computer is like having a very fast crowd assistant who makes no mistakes and doesn't get bored. Frankly, finding and mapping every instance of 1,534 uncommon words is exactly the job I want to hand over to a well-programmed computer. Now, Lexos, the web-based software by the Lexomics folks at Wheaton College, is a dream to use. That's Professor Drought's team. There is thorough documentation on the website, but I did only a limited project. Let me tell you my understanding of the one single feature I used. Lexos can find the proportion of whatever you're looking for in a rolling window, and that means this. What if we're looking for the word in, in a rolling window of five words? In the first window, we read in whole, in the, and that window gets a score of two, two instances of the word in, got it. In the second window, a hole in the ground, you see the window rolled along by one word. That window gets a score of one, the third and fourth windows get a score of one, and then that last window gets a zero. 
instead of just mapping single dots for separate instances of in, which is very tough for our brains to parse meaningfully, we get a connected curve to 1110. And the changes are easy for us to see that the density of in starts high and tapers off. So I wanted to know if I could even use this tool to tell me something we already know. I couldn't trust it if I can't make it show me what I know is objectively true. So I tried running Lexos on the word Gandalf to see if I could use it, if I could understand the results, and I asked for a window of 5,000 words. Those are roughly word numbers along the bottom of the axis, and I have chapter numbers along the top. Do you see the gap in chapter 8? That's when Gandalf leaves Thorin and company at the edge of Mirkwood. There are a couple of references to Gandalf here in chapters 8 and 9. But then in chapter 16, Gandalf re-enters the action of the book. We can see the action of the wizard, in the graph of his name. So we've established the validity of this tool in looking at individual words. I was excited to chart the uncommon words. I was bouncing around a little bit. I wanted to validate by this new method that we could discover the rhetorical peak of the work, the high register, the risen cream. I was ready to support at the word level what other scholars have asserted at the plot, character, or theme level about the apex of the work? Would it be the moment that Thorin declares himself in Lake Town, or the arrival of the Eagles, or Thorin's death scene? Are you ready for the graph? Okay, keep your eyes on the highest point. I had forgotten what I was really measuring. The uncommon words. Let my assumption that they were the highfalutin words be a cautionary tale unto you all. So what do we see? The first thing we can objectively say is the uncommon words are not distributed evenly. Tolkien uses them in different proportions in different scenes. Chapter 1 moves around in its use of uncommon words from introducing a world of hobbits and wizards and snapdragons and dwarves through a section mostly concerned with food and feeling and household chores that we English readers are perfectly familiar with and don't use the words for often. Oh, and do use the words for often, I beg your pardon. Chapter 3 features elves who don't use the language in a common way. Something we know about elves and Rivendell is that it was in some way a refuge from the passage of time for that race of beings whose strength did not lie in adaptation and change. Chapter 4, Goblins. Once again, not human or hobbit, the language surrounding them is uncommon. In Chapter 5, Gollum. His speech impediment broke the scale. And we're going to have more to say about Chapter 5 very shortly. I think these unusual words in the highest mountain section of the graph twist our ears a little, knock us off solid prosy footing. The frequency of uncommon words is stably high for two and a half chapters here. It's enough to suggest the alien languages and cultures underlying these characters and places. Now, the area of the most common words where the red line goes lowest 
comes in Mirkwood. Thorne and company have been starving, the dark and depressing atmosphere weighing them down, and British English is plenty concerned with hunger and sogginess and dimness, so the Mirkwood scene could be directly expressed by the common English words. At the nadir, Bilbo peers into the darkness of the boat across the stream and feely hooks it. Suddenly, you see the line rise. The deer appears, Thorin shoots, Bomber falls in the water, and at the top of that meteoric straight line rise in the frequency of uncommon words, they all left the path and plunge into the forest together. Not only did the story become physically active and pull the dwarves out of their depressive behavior, but we readers were roused to mental activity engaged by unusual, uncommon words. The peak in Mirkwood includes the drawing and naming of Sting, Bilbo killing his spider, deciding to become a hero and lead the spiders away, and his spontaneous Addercott poetry. Now remember, each point on the graph represents the middle of a 5,000 word window. The stream crossing and the drawing of Sting happen well within one single window, whose point is on the sharply rising line. But I did have an awful lot of fun looking at the specific points in the center of each window, and I hope you are as well. The low point in chapter 10 surprised me. I am Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, king under the mountain, I return. It was exactly there. I had predicted that paragraph would be a high point of uncommon words, since in my head, it's a high point of drama. Instead, it's a turning point. The words surrounding it have to do with being soggy and smelling like apples. Other than the names, this phrase uses words so important that they're in common use. We climb out of the barrels, climb through Lake Town, climb the mountain, solve the thrush mystery, climb into the mountain, riddle with smog. Our uncommon word use rises to that double peak around the start of chapter 13. Looking up each one of these points, and Lexos can tell you the exact window number, was very eerie. I can see the dragon sickness and the evil it wreaks in this graph from chapter 13 to 16. We're pulled by the words back into a slump. The exact trough, almost as low as the nadir of helplessness in Mirkwood, and perhaps even more hopeless, is here. As they stood pointing and speaking to one another, Thorin hailed them. Who are you, he called in a very loud voice, that come as if in war to the gates of Thorin, son of Thrain, king under the mountain. And what do you desire? And what restores hope? You can see it too, encoded in the frequency of uncommon words. Words capable of leading us to higher things, to once-in-a-lifetime ethical choices, to being our best hobbit selves. And what are the words at the end of chapter 16? Oh, well done, Mr. Baggins, he said, clapping Bilbo on the back. There's always more about you than anyone expects. It was Gandalf. 
Now the line holds steady throughout the face-off, the parleys, the tensions, the goblins, the wargs, and dying and bloodshed, right up to the objectively measured, carefully calculated turning point in use of uncommon words. The eagles, cried Bilbo once more. But at that moment a stone hurtling from above smote heavily on his helm, and he fell with a crash and knew no more. So we draw to a close. Bilbo learns later what happened while he was unconscious. After this, a small rise through leave-takings and the safe, healing, restorative journey home. Our tale ends where it began, in the Shire. For those of you trying to draw a level line with your eyes, Chapter 19's average matches the trough of Chapter 1. Pardon me, he said, if I have overheard words that you were saying. Now, that was an amazing adventure. We didn't learn anything new about the story. What we did learn is that looking at the word level reveals some of Tolkien's toolbox. That the commonness, the familiarity of words was one of the variables that made any particular word sound and feel right to him as he made his choices creating the tone and complex register of this book. Before breaking the red line down into some of the subcategories of tagged words, Professor Olson, is there any comment that you can read for us or question I might address from our guests? One quick question. Uh, how are the names handled in terms of common versus uncommon words? It's Mary Roth's question. Very good question, Mary. And I went back and forth on that one about every week. Um, I thought to myself, you know, any author can make up names for their characters. So just as any author could use the 10,000 most common words. But then I said, eh, you know, the way Tolkien did words, did names of things, is a whole study in and of itself, and they're just so magnificent. Um, so I included words in this graph, and what is very eerie, let me tell you a little bit about Lexos and how it uh, creates this picture for us. It does not go from zero to some objective 100, like if 100% of the words were uncommon. It goes from near the bottom of the line, wherever the line is, to near the top of the line. So I'll tell you that the number here is at about the 30% about the mark. Um, sorry, 0 0.03, 3%. And right up here, we're at about 10%. So in places that are here, we're approaching 10% uncommon words. Right down here, we're approaching 3% uncommon words. And coincidentally, this is, you know, no such thing as coincidence. Well, this is the coincidence. Um, about 3% is names of things. So the part of the graph that you don't see below that line, imagine that that's all filled with Thorin and Thrain and Bilbo and Gandalf and Gundabad and uh, the names of all the dwarves and such. So they are represented in the um, graph and 
just the names, I, I did run them separately, make it not quite flat line, but almost flat line um, throughout the work. Thank you for that question, Mary. I was That was one of the things I wanted to tell people about. Yeah, great. Uh, Catherine Ryan is asking also, uh, what is the unit on the y-axis of the Gandalf proof of concept graph? Uh, she says, you say again why, and say again why and how you picked the rolling number of words uh, for the Hobbit assessment. I will. Um, let me start with the rolling number of words, and that is, I tested 200, 500, 1,000, 5,000, and using the largest window on rolling window on the graph gave me the smoothest curve. Otherwise, it looked like a really jagged saw. It was hard for my eyes to find the the patterns. But the shape so, was was pretty much the same. It's just the, the spikiness shape, of it. Yes, it like like come. It would be jagged, jagged, right. jagged, jagged, up and down right here. Um, so that's why I chose five thousand. Would it be okay to go off the the map here and run and find out what the scale is on Gandalf's name? Sure. All right, hold on. Don't get seasick, my friends. We're going to go to my finder. Get to see my naming system. It's very frightening. All right. That's it. First window? Nope. The first window. Ah, Gandalf Graph 5K. Alrighty. So our scale is, this really does go down to zero. As we know, he doesn't come in way down there. And it goes up to uh, three tenths of a percent, point zero zero three. Um, so three words in a thousand are Gandalf. Right. At the, right. those peaks. As we could never really expect the name Gandalf to be a huge percentage of the words in any given paragraph, oh, for instance. Not too huge. But, <laughs> but you can tell where those paragraphs come. So it's, it was kind of fun. Right. I figured if I used the word Gandalf as my sample, I should be able to see him leave the story there in Chapter 5 and there in Mirkwood and come back into the story. And then I'd know that I was using the tool right. Right, so that gap in chapter five, that's the riddle game, essentially, right? Yes, that's yeah. the riddle game, because the only names in this chapter are Gollum and Bilbo. Right, right. So the the, the sharp curves down and up at the end there are basically mm-hmm. places where the windows overlap the previous and, and last chapter, right? That's why... Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's why it's not a straight drop-off, right? because the window is so large, yes. And when I did this Gandalf graph, it was a 200... No, it wasn't. No, this is the 5K window. There it's we go. 5K, I yeah. learned to use 5,000 by that time. Yep. Isn't that fun? That's pretty cool. All right. Are we good? Um, yeah, yeah. Sharon was just kind of commenting on how, you know, how interesting this is as a tool. You know, I mean, it's when, uh, you know, Sharon's referring to the fact that, you know, so many times in, in my classes I keep talk about I keep talking about trying to avoid presuming you know that we know what Tolkien thought or what he intended but the really cool thing about uh-huh. this is it gives you a way to show objectively what Tolkien in fact did do right you know that you yes. it's it's not just a yes. question of saying like it seemed to me like this 
trend was happening or, you know, I, I feel that this, but really just to be able to say, here is the actual objective distribution of how these words happen. And then, of course, as you were doing when going through that, there still is interpretive judgment that we use to try to, you know, kind of form the, that usage into a kind of narrative, right? Um, so there's still, that, that, that judgment is still there, but the data that we have to use are, is so much fuller um, than anyone. I mean, when you're just relying on your own memory of the text or, you know, you've gone through and made some notes of particular examples or things, mm -hmm. um, it's so much, so much more inadequate than this kind of really thorough distribution of this kind of objective data. I think it's just, it, just, it, cr it creates such an interesting tool to work with. As I said, one of the really fun parts of me. Before kids, I was a statistician, mm -hmm. and I loved getting my hands on the numbers. I didn't want to look at someone's results. I wanted to look at the individual numbers so I could understand the conclusions and ask the right questions. So this got my hands on every word in that text, and it felt, it was so rewarding to, to know. And I don't really think at the, the theme level, don't think big thoughts. I think little thoughts, which is why I wanted to do words. Let me, let me focus on the words, and I'm going to bring out something beautiful. Oh, very cool. All right, well, I'll let you, I know we're moving now to the really, uh, the really exciting graphs. So, uh, I, this is so I, much fun. I shan't delay you any further. Very good. All right, is my screen looking proper? Yes. There it is. Okay. I was not sure exactly what I had clicked here. Here we go. On to something new. I'm going to try to look in more subtle ways. What happens if I break the red line down and look at some of the words I tagged as I went through? For example, in chapters 3 and 4, about 10% of the height of that red line is accounted for by the words dwarf, elf, goblin, and hobbit. Here's a breakdown of the food words. If I connect the stars at six eggs in chapters 6, 9, and 13, I found a lovely pattern of food words decreasing over the course of the work. I could observe Bilbo developing from a comfortable hobbit concerned with good things to eat into a more experienced, deep character, interested in and partaking of a world wider than breakfast time and tea time. Well, so what? What do I learn? So, let's look beyond that convenient, fatuous line. I created that line. Someone who just wanted to grab a pattern could make that line. But Bilbo had only just had breakfast in the first scene of the book, but then the food words drop while Bilbo's took side begins to rouse. The food words reassert themselves by the end of chapter one when the tookishness was wearing off. Are food words a sign of bagginsishness and proper hobbitiness? The food words soar higher when he takes breakfast orders and he goes about the very proper bagginsish hospitable duties, finding beds and linens. To make the graph between peaks falls, it takes distraction from food. That can be pleasant distraction in chapter 5. It can be 
fright and fight and flight in chapter four. It could be focus and wits and luck in chapter five, but that is not the only thing at work here. As chapter three begins, the uncommon food words plummet, while the total uncommon words soar steeply. It is not a slow process, but a liminal instant. You are come to the very edge of the wild. And across that edge, the narrative voice changes. It expands its word hoard, not only less frequently speaking of food words, but drawing on a wider array of uncommon words to tell of more wonders. After the long food impoverished section in chapters three, four, five, the food words and the baggishness rise, but not to the same height. His attention returns to food and specifically the lack of food. Mirkwood's privations and spider battles knock down the food words again by distracting him, but then relief comes in Thranduil's halls. Once again, the food words did not reach their former heights. Something looks to me as though it is being beaten down in Bilbo. The sight of Smaug and the ensuing battle of wits, as well as Bilbo's quite successful bit of burglary, completely drive food words from the text. This one goes all the way down to zero. After that, it is empty crockery and cram, and then hunger, comparable to wartime rationing. Has all the Bagdensishness been drained out of Bilbo as he became a burglar and a hero? Finally, we get to chapter 19. I've suggested in the blog that chapter 19 heals. Bilbo has made his way slowly home. Bilbo is the author and therefore narrator of the story, and he hasn't mentioned uncommon food since Bacon at the end of chapter 16, even in his after-battle recovery. At the very end of the story, see the tiny uptick in the blue graph? The kettle sings, and the tobacco jar is shared. Bilbo is different. He's changed, but he's not broken. The food words will return all the more savory. Bilbo will recover from fear and war and inhuman enemies. We see it in the pattern of words just as clearly as we feel it. Resilience is inherent in being a hobbit, in valuing food and cheer and song above hoarded gold. So the tale took us there and back again. We have cracked the code for Hobbity Register. Now, I had decided ahead of time that archaic words would indicate high register, and I really have to let go of that. Our green line of archaic words does indicate a general rise toward the rhetorical climax of the book, but only 32 words qualify as archaic. We simply don't have robust findings, and we promised ourselves to be rigorous in interpreting results. Let's set aside the drive to prove something and just have a look around. Trolls use colloquial words, of course, like booby, you're a booby. Booby yourself. But broadly, archaic words signal elves in nearby scenes. 
it's a reminder that elves live much longer than hobbits. Elves speaking the same tongue as Bilbo will have learned it centuries before he did and have a lovely old-fashioned diction. Most of the area under the archaic curve, by the way, is accounted for by one word, merry. Tolkien uses merry in its present use, amusing and jolly, but it got scored as archaic because Tolkien is also using it in a number of the obsolete meanings as defined by the OED. One of the meanings is musically pleasing, which obviously, I mean, merry is Maytime for goodness sakes, or enjoyable or boisterous. And back to Tralala Lally, we are boisterous all over the place. Do thousands of years of life contribute to merriment? I certainly hope so. Okay, while we can't make conclusions based on archaic words, we can observe qualitatively that a lack of both archaic words and food words at the same time indicates goblins, the ultimate in gauche. No words, no food. I was charmed to learn and surprised that 84 of the words were sound play words like hum and whistle and shh. Many of those words are repeated, of course. They comprise about 8% of all the uncommon words. In comparison, um, the names of things like Gandalf, Bilbo, Gundabad were about a third of the uncommon words and the next largest group was food words of the things that I measured. So I began with the idea that sound play words would be light and funny and that I'd be able to tag and track them to identify light-hearted low passages. But then a leaf rustled and the dragon hummed. This poetic technique very simply adds sensation to each scene. It intensifies whatever the mood is. Sometimes Tolkien even uses the onomatopoeic words to ameliorate his tone. He can brighten the scariest parts of his children's bedtime tale to make a monster a little bit familiar. Let's look at the map of the sound play words to see if they're evenly distributed or used in some possibly purposeful way in the work. Okay, so we're looking to see if this is a flat line relatively. Ahem. I had mentioned chapter five, yes. Before we ignore them, I'll note that the barrels out of bond chapter is full of grumbling, snoring, and bumbling about and sneezing. But what is going on in chapter five? Clearly, the purple sound word graph drives the red uncommon word graph. And the reason you see the purple shoot past the red is because they're on two different scales. The purple line compared to red, right where you're looking, is at a one-third scale. When the purple and red lines match, the number of sound words is a third of the total number of uncommon words at that point. Although they're not identical, the coincidence of the peaks at a small, slimy creature and the similarity of the shapes of the peaks is very excuse me, suggestive. Blackwilder observed, 
we may assume that a reader is following the story and the characters and may sometimes fail to notice the unusual words, phrases, or even passages. We come out into the sunlight at the end of chapter 5, breathing a huge sigh of relief. How did he use the words, phrases, and passages to affect us emotionally and subliminally? Well then, we can take advantage of the writing and publication history of The Hobbit. Take a close look at chapter 5, the chapter which we know he changed in order to change the facts and the tone and register of the story. Alrighty, here's the graph of uncommon words of chapter 5 as it was written in 1937. I did this, of course, on a smaller rolling window. This is only chapter 5. I placed a few textual landmarks, and I love that scrumptiously grunchable is a peak, and the highest frequency is right at the end of the riddle game, as Gollum is waiting for Bilbo's last question. Now you can see an artificial valley right here as Gollum cannot find the ring, and another one after about word 4200, and the largest and last one after Bilbo puts on the ring, which stretches until he and Gollum part ways. Now, I call these artificial valleys because at those points in the 1951 chapter 5 has those different paragraphs inserted. What I did was I typed the word and in each of those spots enough times to match the 1951 word count without making a false image of uncommon words. So, I want you to keep your eyes on those artificial valleys, okay? And I'm going to overlay the 1951 graph over 1937. Ready? Over all three 1937 valleys, are towering 1951 mountains of uncommon words. When he wrote those extra paragraphs, Tolkien pulled out the stops. Pockets and curse us and crush us. The 1937 paragraphs which were removed, you want to find the valleys in the bright red line, were definitely not peak word moments. They sort of toddle along in the average for the whole chapter. I'm going to take out the pale red 1937 line. I'm going to put in the 1951 purple sound line. Ready? Great elephants! The sound words are not just frequent. You remember that purple equals one-third of the red scale? That's not true in these graphs. In chapter 5, when the red and purple lines match, the purple sound words are over half of the uncommon words. We see from the shapes of the graphs that the sound words are the main factor in the uncommon diction of this chapter. Tolkien added these paragraphs to tie the text forward to the Lord of the Rings as he was writing and discovering that longer, more complex work. We can also notice that scrumptiously crunchable is not driven by sound words, which may or may not be of particular interest, but it does reassure us the strength of the sound graph elsewhere is not an error because we can see it's not omnipresent. We just did a little math check here. 
here they are. These are the completely new, uncommon words from 1951. I've highlighted for you, in blue, the words with an S sound in them. Huh. So chapter 5 is full to the brim with sound words, and even those words not explicitly about sound have the creepsy and precious feeling to them. It's certainly not unexpected. After all, it's dark in the cavern. Each sound is magnified, and it's the strongest sense Bilbo has working for him to perceive his situation. Why does Tolkien use sound words more densely in the new 1951 paragraphs of Chapter 5 than in the earlier edition? As Corey Olson says, the caverns and tunnels are just as dark in 1937. In this project, we focus on register. What change in register did Tolkien achieve in his later edition? Gollum in 1951 is based on Gollum of the Lord of the Rings. He's more wicked, more tragic than he had been 15 years before. The Ring of Invisibility, so convenient for burglars, must now hint of the menace and sleeping evil of the One Ring. So, wicked register, tragic, menacing, evil, dangerous, slippery, slimy, decaying, unclean, unwholesome. Tolkien used a thicker density of sounds, particularly hissing S's and Gollum's just a bit inhuman, sibilant speech to create corrupt register. Our noses twitch with instinctive disgust. With our new tools, we can see at the word level what other scholars assert at the plot, character, and concept level, and we can point the particular letter that does the job. In the end, it's chapter five, which uses sound play words like the instruments of the London Symphony Orchestra. After all, the chapter is not titled Riddles in the Well-Lit Parlor. The exciting news for us is that we can measure exactly what Tolkien changed between his two editions of Chapter 5, and we know exactly why he made those changes from reading his letters. We've proven that the new paragraphs are full of uncommon words, over half of which are sound words. I conclude that the sounds of stagnant water and deep-throated swallowing and gollum words and a preponderance of hissing are Tolkien's specific instruments for creating the tone of decay and corruption which emanates from the ring. I would be excited to carry this idea forward and examine the ring-influenced portions of The Lord of the Rings. So what? So we have a tool. We have a robust and valid tool for seeking the influence of the ring of corruption, of evil in Tolkien's work at a subtle level. It is right there, encoded in the sounds of the words working on us non-lexically. I can pause here for the fabulous final graph, Professor Olson. Are there any questions I can answer or comments to share? Uh, <clears throat> one quick question. Mark uh, Noaki was asking... Um, 
uh, if you could just kind of explain, he said uh, earlier in the talk, you used the terms high and low um, and talking about the yes. register of uh, things and choosing where to put words. Uh, can you explain yes. what these terms mean to you, he says? Oh, God bless you, Mark. Before I started this project, high words were like E-R-E, uh, um, -E, air. Uh, long will I tarry ere I begin this war for gold. And low words were things like mud. And <laughs> then, right? And then there were words like moan. And sometimes the dwarves had just had one of their comic bumbling scenes and they were moaning and groaning because, like, you know, they weren't used to hiking so far and they'd just all fallen out of the tree or been dumped out of the... Um, um, well, slide software is doing something interesting. Um, they'd been dumped out of the bags that the trolls had them in, so they were moaning, but then later the wind moaned in the trees, and that was eerie, and that was adventurous and high. And so I had single words that were both low and high, and I said, oh, okay. Um, by high, I mean makes me think of of kings and of squaring my shoulders <laughs> and of, right. Right? And, right and I can do that in gathering my courage and by low I'm thinking yeah everyday stuff washing the dishes fairly low but I realized that's not something that's held inside words it, that's got to be in the the phrases the actions the sentences what's actually going on so yeah, when when I read a Howard Pyle novel, and I can hear the trumpets in the distance, and I right. want to leap on my charger, and it's not the words that make that high register and fancy stuff. So, um, there's more to learn about high and low register, but I have not got it here. What I learn is that it's not here. Right, exactly. That's it, it, it's it, and it's such an important step. Again, that's exactly the kind of thing. Um, that uh, where I think it's so easy for this kind of a project to fall down, right? If you if you start off with a you know a certain number of kind of not really very rigorously examined assumptions about what makes uh -huh. words low or high, but you just sort of assert this, and then you go uh -huh. and you do your mapping on that basis, you end up finding something. But you know what you're yeah, finding is really I just a reflection exactly of your what own... I thought I was <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I got handed my own silver platter for collateral, and you know yeah. sometimes if you're rigorous about it and you find that three other editors reached the same conclusion you did, you can take it. But eh, it's it's too easy to take the easy way. Right. But now his question about register though is somewhat different. In register, oh. you're using the word register not as a way to kind of label particular words, but as a way to kind of characterize an overall trend in usage, essentially something like that. I think I am. And tone and register to me have a have a big overlap and they have to do with how I feel when I'm reading and oh I am becoming inarticulate. Right. Could you 
Yes. This is me becoming inarticulate because all the words just went out of my head. I'll bet we just passed 9 o'clock. Did we just pass 9 o'clock? Yeah, just a few minutes ago. Just, okay. I get very dumb at 9. Sparrow is turning into a linguistic pumpkin. We should let her finish. (laughs) When I I have classes with the Tolkien professor, he, of course, wants to start after his kids are in bed. And it's, it's, I'm at that quarter of 11 at night, I'm kind of <laughs> scraping my consciousness. It's pretty funny. All right. <sighs> Shall we trundle on? Okay, absolutely. Let With, us do okay. so. Okay. And I will try, Mark, I am so delighted to see you here tonight. I will try to answer you coherently in the morning after coffee. Here we go. <laughs> Next fabulous slide. You guys are going to love this graph. The Tolkien professor has observed that Bilbo's big crossroads are finding the ring, killing the spider, and going down the tunnel toward the dragon. Each of those scenes includes making an active choice to move forward in the dark. Note that in chapter 12 over here, Bilbo is grim. That's the adjective associated with kings. So I made a little graph of one particular word. Clearly, the three choice points show up in our graph, plus a few more high points in chapters 1, 6, 9, and 17. What do these scenes have to do with the big crossroads? I don't know. I'm just the concordance lady. What I do know, because I used the lens of lexomics, is that Tolkien uses this word, Bilbo, in a special way in the crossroads scenes. Plus, the scene where our hero takes on a leadership role and when agents of the Valar directly move the action of Bilbo's story. I am closer to the text. I have more to learn and discover from The Hobbit. I found a break in the expected pattern, and that means I'm not done. I get to go back to the text to see what's going on. So what? I observe that Lexos was developed to find the change in the hand which held the pen. I suggest that we can step back to a wider view. The changes in narration at the edge of the wild, in running for his life through the dark, in scenes of starvation and excitement and courage, tell me how to read The Hobbit. Did the hand change which held the pen? Crossing the borderland changed Bilbo, changed his perspective, his potential. From the comfort of semi-retirement in Bag End, did his heart still soar, recalling Rivendell, and race remembering his battle of wits with Smaug? Did he shudder when he thought of Gollum and weep and square his shoulders when he recited Thorin's final words to him. I say yes. I say Tolkien did not write the story of Bilbo's adventure. Tolkien wrote Bilbo's memoirs of those adventures, a first-person account of the sogginess and fear and bacon and smoke rings and self-deprecating moral courage. Tolkien captured Bilbo's own writing style managed to change the hand that held the pen, using diction to create the tones of Bilbo. 
smiling gently at his own bagginsishness, remembering bewilderment, hunger, and elves, vicariously thrilling as he recalled his own excitement, and instinctively grimacing in disgust at corruption. I've made a new workhorse tool for all of us scholars to share. I've validated a new tool for finding intriguing questions, which opened my eyes and ears more widely to the text. I've learned that register is not simply high or low. It's a complex interaction of subtler tones, some of which I have a handle on. Best of all, I have a new way to read The Hobbit. I'd like to thank everyone who made this project possible, especially my advisor. He's Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. You have found the Mythgard Institute of Signum University. And I'm Sparrow. I'll see you in class. <laughs> this is the storm that was interrupting our broadcast. <laughs> That's <time>. right, yes. <laughs> the first time we did this, there was this like enormous thunderstorm uh, uh, coming through, which we weren't even sure Sparrow was going to have power when, uh, uh, when, when things began. But uh, <laughs> I was fair. Now, uh, uh, Aurora has a quick question. What is your favorite gem word and why? Oh, sure. <gasps> oh. What a wonderful question. It must be Carrick. It must <laughs> yeah. Be, because, number one, I'm such a fan of Beorn and always thought, oh, he's got this special word all to himself. But then to discover that it's Cumbrian, which is, and tell me if I've got this right, Professor, it's sort of Old English meets the region where the Normans didn't bother to settle meets <laughs> right. the region where the Celts sort of settled but then kept going um, and it was on a trade route but there really wasn't anyone living there except for three people who spoke Cumbrian <laughs> <laughs> and so to have this to, and I know because of other um, courses I've taken at Mythcard that Cumbrian was something Tolkien absolutely knew about he had read the Cthulhu which was actually written in Cumbrian okay maybe there were more than three people um, but he knew about Cumbrian and Cumbrian words and had studied them in his, in his etymology studies. And so I was able to touch this language, which was a mystery. And the great thing is there's, Car there's the village of Carrick Castle. You can go to their website. I linked the village website from my blog. <laughs> in the concordance page for Carrick? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, it's this darling little village, and they've got a school, and you can check out what the homework is tonight. And <laughs> it, it looks like there are about twenty kids in the school, but every year they have a music festival. <laughs> and I've got to say, I spent a whole day looking at maps and hiking trails up Carrick Hill, and thinking about taking vac vacations to Carrick Castle. It is now on my bucket list. That's my favorite gem word. That's great. Yeah. No, it, and of course, that was especially fun because Tolkien kind of makes a joke about the origin of the word in the story, right? You know, and yes. about why Bjorn calls that, why it's called the Carrick. He's like, well, he calls it a Carrick because Carrick is his name for it. And this is the one that's closest to his house. It's called the Carrick because it's the biggest one around, you know, so uh, just, you know, and, and that's his word for that kind so of thing. <laughs> and what did Tolkien like to do? He liked to do stuff like read maps and read the phone book. Yes. 
Did he notice there were a lot of people named Ben or Bjorn or Artos in that region? Was he saying that the descendants of Bjorn live in the village of <laughs> Carrick Castle? If I go there, will I be aware of it? I'm so excited. <laughs> Can you see how much fun this project was? Oh, it absolutely. Was absolutely. I had a ball. Yeah, uh, Grace McEwen has a quick question. Uh, she says, uh, she said, she thanks and says it was really fascinating. She's always thought that Tolkien used language in a very deliberate manner, and it's fascinating to see it in a measurable form. She asked, what results did you find the most surprising? Oh, my goodness. Um, it had to be... You can probably tell from the way I'm speaking that, like, every time something exciting happened, I danced around the house and went and woke up my children and told them what I just discovered. And the poor kids haven't eaten in three months. Um, I have to say that the graph of Bilbo's name mm -hmm. really made me uh, uh, sort of mentally shake because there's Gandalf pushing him out the door. Let me see if I can... Roll back up to it. There's Gandalf pushing him out the door. There are the eagles picking him up out of a tree. There are the eagles coming in to save the day. So not only do we have the big crossroads things and the leadership things, but we know from our study of the Silmarillion, and folks, if you haven't read it yet, that's okay. Go to the Tolkien professor's website. He will help you read the Silmarillion. <laughs> we know from the Silmarillion, oh my goodness, there's a typo, sorry, um, all about the Valar and how they watch the affairs of Middle-earth, but they don't really interfere, but when they do interfere, that's with these great hearts, but then everything goes wrong, and so they don't dare interfere because they messed that up in the first couple of ages. But then there they are touching at these peak moments. And why is the word Bilbo peaking at these moments? And does that have something to do with his identity? And now I want to go forward and find the words fate and chance and fortune, which are common. So I want to start adding some common words to my concordance as I move right. forward. That's my next right. project. Um, and what will that show about these Valar moments that relates them to the making his own personal decision to go forward in the dark? So exciting. And it, it, it makes sense to me that the daring escape, the becoming a leader right, in the group right. related yep. to the crossroad moments. That, yeah. that was an easy jump. It's, it's really, I mean, the... Because see, the thing is, one is tempted to say, like, take chapter six, for instance, right? The, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire and the rescue by the eagles there. You know, one is tempted to say, like, well, that's sort of a moment of crisis, right? So, of course, you know, moments of crisis, it's, it wouldn't be surprising. You know, the, 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 the narrative sort of focuses in more on Bilbo's care, you know, on Bilbo and what Bilbo is thinking and how he's responding to the crisis. <laughs> Except that's not true everywhere. You know, I mean, like, that doesn't correlate with the, uh, with the, like, you know, chapter four, for instance, he gets captured by goblins in chapter four, but chapter four what? is only bumped up by the end by the, by the carryover from the rolling window from chapter five, right? right? So right. it's getting pulled up by chapter five. Exactly. And of course, part of it, if I, if I could 
spend the whole rest of my life doing this, which would be great. <laughs> I would, of course, say, okay, how many other people were in this scene? Is the reason his name is all over it the fact that he's the only person in the room? You know, chapter five, there are only two people in the room. But beginning of chapter two, you've got a whole passel of dwarves walking along with you. And everyone's getting restless. So there, there are a lot of variables I would love to explore and pull out, mm -hmm. which is which is one of the reasons I am excited about seeking funding and ways to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. So exciting. cool. So cool. And okay. Okay. Sorry. See, I, I can't help but just keep making observations about this. So look at chapter 16. Absolutely. Chapter 16. Right. That's, that's, that's the, that's the Arkenstone chapter. That's Bilbo handing over the Arkenstone. You'd think. Which I thought would be huge. Absolutely. It's so right. important. And his, he and, is, he is, being, he is saving his friend by betraying the letter of the friendship, but supporting the spirit of it. It's a big deal. And it's la la la. Do, 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 Defining moment. But his name isn't used. Yeah. I mean, it's used, but it's very, yeah. it's very little used. It's a, it's a local, it's a, it's a relative low. So, yeah, and, and <laughs> things like that are, are what sort of really, and then especially the peak up there in, uh, you know, at the end of 17, beginning of 18, you know, it just, it makes that whole section much more remarkable. Um, you know, how much more of Bilbo we get, not only up there, you know, when the Eagles arrive, but through the end of the book, you know, the, the focus on Bilbo and the repetition of his name during the denouement. Now, I mean, just yes. the mere use of his name doesn't feeling. necessarily, I mean, you know, but it's it's really suggestive because yeah. I mean, you talk about talk about your stable variables, right? Again, you'd expect a maybe not a perfectly flat line, but a flatter line than this. You know, on the use of Bilbo's name across the course of the Hobbit. Um, Isn't that fun? But yeah, just it's... looking at the uncommon words the very first time that it was drawn for me. I said, okay, null hypothesis is disproven. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is not a flat line. It doesn't matter. Yes. So I was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. That's so cool. So cool. Now there's so much, there's so much that can be done. And of course, you know, it's impossible to look at these things without thinking of a hundred other searches you can do and a hundred other, you know, kinds of projects that, that you can do not right. only through the Hobbit, but expanding into Tolkien's other, uh, other works and uh, all that stuff. I mean, there's, there's so much, so much to be Absolutely. done. Absolutely. And I really welcome people's comments on the blog. One of my hopes for the blog, and I've got a few things to add already is that in the concordance under a particular word, what if you as a scholar have written or run across someone else's word, uh, I mean paper, on a particular word or concept? I'd love to link that in the concordance. So someone who's looking up, um, for example, cram, is going to be able to read Aura uh, uh, Morgan's fabulous treatise on Krem and its caloric value and how they managed to survive so long and comparing it to Lembas. Wouldn't that be fun? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you, everyone who came. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This yes, is very good. And thank you, Sparrow. This has uh, been such a such an enlightening journey, certainly for me. I've been uh, uh, so delighted to see the results you've been getting and just the, the fruit of your long labors here, even the, of course, the, the very initial stages, you know, the, the fact that you have, um, 
you know, done things like devise a, a paragraph numbering say, uh, system for universal citation of The Hobbit, and then right. made a, 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 you know, freely available, publicly accessible, uh, annotated concordance for the entire Hobbit. Um, you know, those are two minor things which are merely the preliminary stages of this project <laughs> that you've yeah, done. I, which I thought they would be my whole project. I would have been <laughs> proud of myself yeah. had I just gotten that all done in a nice professional manner that everyone could use. I have control contributed to the field and yeah. then oh boy oh boy <laughs> so <laughs> cool we started having fun absolutely, absolutely. well i know that uh, I, I know that everybody else joins me in looking forward to seeing you know your further adventures in this field as we move Ooh. along and i hope uh, i hope to uh, be able to check in with you for another uh, an, another report on new things that you've discovered later on excellent excellent I will see you soon. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Good night.